This morning we're turning to our study in Ephesians chapter 5. I have titled the sermon, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Speak No Evil, question mark. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. I hope you, I hope you had a blessed week. I want, to, I want to say I'm amazed. I'm amazed at all that the Lord is doing in our midst. I love to see the, the body dynamics as we grow in Christ. I, I love to hear as people gather together outside of this main gathering, they gather together and, and enjoy one another, enjoy relation, building relationships with one another. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would continue to knit our hearts together in love for one another and for the Lord. I'm so thankful for the times of refreshing that the Lord, is, that the Lord gives to the church. But as you know, the Lord also allows times of great difficulty in the, in the body, in the life of the body. Many times these trials come when church members, unfortunately, participate in evil, in evil activities. Uh, we hope that it is a rarity for Christians, those who call themselves Christians, to partake in uh, sinful activities. But as many of you know and have experienced, this happens all too often in the church, does it not? The question is, what do we do when evil affects us? How do we respond to these challenging circumstances? When I was a kid, my parents owned a small statue with four monkeys. Uh, I think it's... There might have been three monkeys. You, maybe, maybe you've seen one like it. Uh, the monkeys were labeled, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. The, the speak no evil monkey had his hands covering his mouth, and the hear no evil monkey had it covering his ears, and the see no evil had it covering, his hands covering his eyes. Now, as I looked into this, it seems that there's two ways to understand this proverb. One is to be virtuous and morally upright in the face of evil around one. Do not allow oneself to become taken in or overwhelmed by the evil. The second way, which seems to me the more prevalent understanding of this proverb, is ignore or turn a blind eye to evil without acting against it. Now, many Christians, as you know, will do one or the other. But the question is, does that fit with Scripture? Does this, I, I did some research, and this seems to be a Japanese proverb, does this fit with the teaching of Scripture? Are we to squeeze our eyes tight, cover our ears, and pretend that evil doesn't exist, especially evil in the church? You know, are we supposed to have a live and let live mentality? Well, in this passage this morning, the Apostle Paul gives us the answers to these questions. As children of light, Paul gives three crucial responses to the presence of evil in the church. We are to, or not to, engage with it first. Secondly, we are to expose it. And thirdly, we are to entrust Jesus with it. Now, let me pray for the sermon this morning, and I'll read uh, the, the passage in Ephesians, and we'll get started with our time. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in prayer. This morning, hoping, praying that you will use, we know that you will use your word preached uh, in the lives of the hearer. Father, we pray that it would do its good work. 
We thank you for the word. We thank you for those who are able to teach it. Father, it is a gift from you. It's not something that they conjured up on their own. Father, this morning I pray for the preacher that he would decrease as you increase. In Christ's name, amen. You know, there are many events in the course of history which stand out to us because of the enormity of their impact. I'm sure that those who lived through the attack on Pearl Harbor can remember exactly where they were when they heard that news. I can only imagine, thinking of outside of our own situation, I can only imagine the impact of the destruction of, say, Jerusalem in AD 70 as the news slowly spread throughout the known world. You know, there are a few events that are vivid. There are a few events that are vivid in my own memory. I remember uh, the Challenger accident, the space shuttle Challenger. As I was traveling with my father through the California desert, we heard about the shuttle explosion. We had, to, we had stopped at a rest area and heard the news from some fellow travelers. And from the re- for the rest of the trip, we were going back to Arkansas, where I lived. For the rest of the trip, I was glued to AM radio, hoping to get some information about what happened. I can vividly, vividly remember also the 9-11 attacks. I was working on a new Costco in North Las Vegas, and my wife and first son were with me. We, were at, we stayed that night at the MGM Grand Hotel near the airport. And of course, when we heard that they may be targeting large invisible targets, I made my wife quickly check out of the hotel. Now, I'm not sure she's ever truly forgiven me for that one, because <laughs> she was traveling around Vegas all day, with nothing to do, and she was seven months pregnant with my second son and and with a toddler in tow, and all the stores were closing, and I was still, unfortunately, working. But there it is. I'm not sure, though, how we will look back at the more recent events. The great lockdown, I'll call it, of of 2020 will surely be remembered. But this experience, to me, is different from the others because... Uh, because I remember beginning to hear about this virus. It was out there somewhere, but it was so abstract to us. And in some ways, I was just talking to one of you this morning, in some ways, it still remains a little abstract with little jolts of, in some ways, sometimes big jolts of reality when someone suffers greatly from this disease. But have you noticed that most, if not all, these events are tied to the fallen nature of humanity and the world? You know, in a fallen world, shuttles explode. In a fallen world, nations attack other nations. In a fallen world, men fly airplanes into buildings for religious reasons. In a fallen world, viruses mutate and become more deadly than their predecessors. And we see that even with a variant on the COVID or the coronavirus. Or several variants, possibly. In a a fallen world, rulers take advantage of these types of events to gain more power. Beloved, that's the nature of evil which is all around us. It even, by the way, lurks in our own flesh, does it not? As Christians, it's rather easy to build our safe places to keep the evil out, but as soon as we enter those secure compounds, guess what? Evil enters as well. I've often thought of our families in in these terms. We can build walls around our homes and bar the world from coming in. 
Yet if we don't acknowledge and deal with the evil lurking within our own human hearts, then we've done nothing. By the way, you should build a hedge of protection around your home. It is unwise to let evil flow into your family unfiltered. But we must recognize that the evil lurking in our flesh and in our children, we must recognize that and we must let shine the light of Christ upon each of those things in our hearts. We shouldn't make rules regarding evil while harboring evil thoughts and intentions in our own hearts. Yet we must not assume that the evil of this world doesn't affect our families in incredibly profound ways. The question is, have you thought about the church in these terms? How should the body of Christ respond to evil in her midst? How should the church respond to evildoers who commit deeds of darkness? Friends, we live in a fallen world, as we've pointed out. Therefore, we have to address the evil that lurks. If we choose to ignore it, then it will overrun us. Say that again. If we choose to ignore the evil, it will overrun us. The question of how we are to do this is the subject of today's passage. So let me read Ephesians 5. I'm going to start in verse 6 and read through 14. Paul writes, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, as you know, we've been studying through this letter to the to the church at Ephesus. And I'm always amazed at how a letter written uh, almost 2,000 years ago to an obscure church in Asia Minor would apply to us today in a modern context in Gainesville, Florida. Yet, it absolutely does. I'm also astonished at God's timing in bringing us to passages that are so relevant to our current state of affairs. As churches, we believe that we face, we will face greater and greater difficulties in the years to come. I was talking to another pastor this past week, and he said this. He said if, if he had been asked a year ago uh, when we would descend to the point of arresting church members for preaching the gospel, he said that he would have said probably 20 years. Within 20 years, we will go to that point. He said this, he, though, though now he believes that it may be less than five years and could be significantly less than that, before we are being thrown in jail for preaching Christ. Now, as we've seen through our study, Paul wrote this particular letter under house arrest, primarily for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So you see how relevant this really is. Just on the surface, we can see an obvious parallel to our times. Paul had been jailed for several years, and the people in Ephesus were fearful. Yet some of them were becoming unruly and even disobedient. Some were even going back to their old ways of life. 
Some were probably saying that we can live in the darkness and still receive our inheritance as Christians. Therefore, Paul wrote this letter to encourage the church at Ephesus. He had spent uh, much time there with the saints, and he cared for them. He didn't want to. He, he, he didn't want to see them fall back into their old manner of life. He also understood, though, the strategic importance of this church. He knew that the enemy was attacking Ephesus because they were the hub of the churches in that, during that stage of, of history. The devil believed that if he could destroy the church at Ephesus, he could devastate the entire movement. For these reasons, Paul wrote to, to encourage the, the church at Ephesus to keep up the fight, to fight the good fight. He spent the first three chapters reminding them of the greatness of their salvation. He wanted them to know the hope of their calling and to understand that they truly had the power of God working through them. As such, they could stand firm in the faith and fight against the schemes of the devil. That's what we'll see in chapter 6. Now, I would argue that these final three chapters are an extended therefore. In other words, Paul had explained why they had this great hope, why they should have this great hope. Therefore, he wrote chapters 4 through 6 to describe how they should walk, how they should live considering those great truths, how they should con conduct themselves considering those great truths. Church, there are many parallels to our current situation, and if things continue down the current path, we'll experience many of these same struggles. If the world continues to marginalize Christian beliefs, then we'll feel the pressure to give into the world. Let me say that again. We'll feel the pressure to give into the world. Believe me, it will come. It has already happened to others who have, who have capitulated. They have changed the message because of the pressure. But I promise you, I promise you it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. As soon as the church lets the world get a foothold, they will never stop pushing for more until they destroy that church. They'll never stop pushing. And this has been consistently true throughout the church age. Therefore, it is, it is absolutely crucial that we understand Paul's message to the church at Ephesus. Now, we find ourselves studying the fourth of five walk statements in these final chapters. The first statement we see in 4.1, where Paul urges the Christian to walk worthy of the calling. The second statement is in 4.17, where he exhorts the believer not to walk as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their minds. The third statement is in 5.2, where Paul calls us to walk and love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is a sacrificial love for the saints. It's a sacrificial life uh, given in love for the saints. And the fourth statement is found in 5.8, where the apostle calls for Christians to walk as children of light. Now, we've been studying this fourth walk statement for the past two ser sermons. In verses 6 through 10, Paul gave two simple commands to ensure that we are pleasing to the Lord. We must avoid the deception of the disobedient, that's 5, 6 through 8, and we must avoid the darkness by walking in the light, that's 8 through 10. Now, in 5, 11 through 14, he's going to give us th these crucial responses to those in our midst who fall back into their evil ways. So let's look at that first response, that first crucial response. We are not to engage with evil. Look at your text in 5.11. Paul writes, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. 
Now let me try to, to, to set what seems to be the context here. In verse 7, Paul told the Ephesians not to be partakers with the sons of disobedience. I take the sons of disobedience as being unbelievers who are outside of the church. This matches Ephesians 2 where Paul called unbelievers the children of wrath. Here in Ephesians 5, he refers to true believers as children of light. Now, I would argue that there are two groups of people in focus here with possibly two subgroups. The first group we've already talked about, the unbelievers who are in the world. They're called the sons of disobedience. The second group is in focus here. <coughs> the second group who are in focus here are, are Christians in the church. Paul calls them children of light. Now, these were those who were called out from the darkness by the Father. Now, I think there are a couple of subgroups in view, in view here. We may refer to the first as the tares if you will. These are people in the church who are not children of light. They, they're in the church, they sit in the pews, but they're not children of light. They may even be false teachers. These people were probably saying in the time of Ephesus, they were probably saying that it's okay to participate in immorality and impurity and greed and talk, and, and talk which is unfit. They were trying to teach that a Christian can participate with these things and still inherit the kingdom of Christ. Now, the second subgroup, I believe, that's in view here are immature Christians who are potentially falling for the schemes of these men. They don't know any better. They, they're, they're being drugged about. They're being tempted. Paul has already warned them about participating with the sons of disobedience. That's verse 7. It says, don't be partakers with them. Clearly, they are not to go out and associate with them in any meaningful way. Now, here in verse 11, I believe he ups the ante, so to speak. He tells the children of the light, the, the believers, not to even participate in their works or in their deeds. If we think through this for a moment, we'll see the wisdom of Paul's statement. Before the, garden, the fall in the Garden of Eden, there was no presence of evil before the serpent showed up correct? In Genesis 2.15, it says that the, the, the Lord God put the man in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Uh, these verbs, cultivate and keep, I would argue, are later used of the priest in the tabernacle. And I, I would also argue that the tabernacle points back to the garden. The, if you understand, the tabernacle points back, and we can see that in some of the symbolism in, in the tabernacle. So in Genesis 2.15, kind of cutting to the, to the chase here, in Genesis 2.15, I would argue that God placed the man in the garden uh, to protect it from evil. So when the serpent showed up and began to speak evil against the Word of God, what should Adam's response have been? Well, he should have protected his wife by refusing to engage with that evil. Now, I'm using the word engage in the sense of participation. Adam and Eve chose to engage in conversation with the serpent, which led them to be influenced by his deceptions. Notice the difference between what Jesus did, what Jesus did in the wilderness. What did he do? He didn't engage in the sense of, of going back and forth with the devil. What he did was he responded with Scripture every time. 
He didn't, he didn't go to, and he didn't allow himself to be influenced by the devil and what the devil had to say. You see, Adam and Eve chose to engage in the conversation, especially Eve, but I believe Adam was there with her. Now ask yourself, what should they have done? They shouldn't have participated, right? Back in Ephesians 5.11, and the word translated participate has the idea of sharing in or having a connection, a connection with. Paul uses this word in Philippians 4.14 to tells the, church, the Philippian church, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. In 18.4, we see it on the other side, a voice from heaven spoke saying, come out of her, this is out of Babylon, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. You see, this idea of being woven together with it, this idea of, of just really participating or connecting with it. So we... That we see the idea here is not to share or have a connection with uh, these unfruitful deeds of, of darkness. Uh, the verb tense gives us the idea of making it our practice to engage with these deeds. We don't want to make it our practice. We may come in contact. Uh, the, the Lord Jesus came in contact with the devil, but, but he, didn't, he didn't form a connection with him. The word translated unfruitful has the idea of useless or or unproductive. Uh, the word is used of fruitless or unproductive land in Jeremiah 2.6, and of, uh, of fruitless uh, of and unproductive seed in Matthew 13.22, and of trees in Jude 12. It's even used of unfruitful people in Titus 3.14. Therefore, Paul is referring to fruitless, unproductive works whose source is the darkness. In the words of Harold, Harold Honer, who is a commentator we quote quite often uh, through the study. He says this, if believers, if these believers had been formerly darkness but now are now the light in the Lord, why should they participate in the sins that come from the place to which they had previously been in bondage? End quote. You should recall that Paul established in chapter 1 that these people, the, these Christians, had been redeemed from the slave market of sin. They were enslaved to these deeds of darkness. Why then would they return to them? Now we contrast these works of darkness to the works described in, in Ephesians 2.10, these works that are prepared beforehand by the Lord, works of righteousness. So the Christian goes from the darkness to the light, but goes from the works of darkness to the works of, of light. These are truly fruitful works in which we are to participate. These are good and righteous works. So clearly as Christians, we're not to engage with evil. Beloved, the question is, are you participating with evil in any way? I mean, in, in America, it, perhaps it could be what you're watching on television. It could be what you're viewing online. Maybe it's pornography. Or maybe you're involved in certain social groups with interests that are evil. That are dragging you away from the, the truths of Scripture. According to the Bible, beloved, according to this passage, we are to stay away from these things. We are not to be connected with them. We are not to engage them in that way. Beloved, you must... Let me say this clearly. You must... You must, you must take this exhortation seriously. 
I don't think I'm overstating it to say that your eternal soul may depend upon it. If you don't believe me, let me give you the words of three men of God. John Owen says, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. J.C. Ryle says that he that boasts of being one of God's elect, while he is willfully and habitually living in sin, is only deceiving himself and talking wicked blasphemy. End quote. R.C. Sproul says it simply, not until we take God seriously will we ever take sin seriously. End quote question is, are you taking sin seriously? Are you taking your walk seriously, or are you giving in to evil? Are you engaging with evil? Let us move on to the, the second crucial response to the presence of evil. Secondly, we've seen first that we are not to engage with it. Secondly, we are to expose it. Look at your text. Paul tells the church, at the end of verse 11, but even... Expose them, or instead, even expose them. Earlier, I asked you the question, what should Adam and Eve have done as soon as they identified that the serpent was speaking against the Lord God? We answered that question in the negative. They shouldn't have continued to engage with the serpent. But here, Paul gives the positive response, and I mean positive as in what we're to positively do, in response to evil in our midst. We are not to engage, but we are to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. We, we can't simply walk away from evil and ignore it. This goes back to the Japanese proverb from earlier. See no evil, hear no evil, right? Well, if this is your attitude, you are absolutely wrong. You can't just ignore evil in our presence. In the words of John MacArthur, he says to ignore evil is to encourage it. To keep quiet about it is to help promote it, end quote. Now, you may be asking, what does Paul mean by the word expose? Uh, the, the verb actually has the idea of exposing something for what it is. It is used in this way in Matthew 18, 15. It says, if your brother sins... By the way, this is the teaching on church discipline, and we'll, we're going to hit this pretty hard this morning. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The idea in Matthew 18... There is to expose the sin to him so that he can see it clearly. You see, we can be blinded by our sin. Therefore, we need our brothers to come alongside us and expose them. Now, this is the first step in church discipline. And oh, by the way, this ought to be going on on a regular basis. You should be going to your brother. If you see something, you should be going to your brother with grace and exposing that to him so that he will see it, so he doesn't walk in it. Hopefully, you win. It will win your brother that way. The verb also, though, carries the idea of reproof or correction, punishment or discipline. It is used like this in Second Timothy four two two, where Paul calls Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, here's the question: What does Paul intend for us to do here? Is it simply exposing or bringing evil to light? Or is there something more involved? Now, I would argue there's something more involved. Let me give you the progression of actions involved in exposing evil for what it is. First, 
First, we are to shed light on the evil acts. That's Paul's focus in this passage. We are exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. Paul gives this principle in verse 13. Now, we'll come back to verse 12. You notice we are in verse 11. Now, I'm going to jump to 13 because I think he gives the principle for this exposing in 13, and then we'll drop back to 12. In 5.13, he says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Now, that principle should be clear. We can't see things that are obscured by darkness, but when we shine a light on them, they become visible. When I was young, I could read in a semi-dark room with no problem. My dad would come by, and he was, he was a little bit older. He came by, and he'd say, Hey, you need some light to see. Of course, I would say, because I was young, Oh, Dad, I, I can see just fine. I didn't understand until I turned about 45, <laughs> and I turned a corner, and all of a sudden I became my dad. It became obvious that, that I needed light. I need a bright light. Now I need a magnifying glass to make anything visible. But the point is, the words become visible in the light. In the same way, evil becomes clear when we shine the light of the Word of God on it. The second part of verse 13 is not so clear, I would argue, in the NAS or in the ESV. The NAS says, for everything that becomes visible is light. <clears throat> now, I don't want to go too far into science, but scientifically, this is a true statement, is it not? Because we see light reflect off an object in its range of colors and variations. We perceive the physical attributes of an object based on how we perceive the reflection of light. We don't really, it's, it, we're not seeing necessarily the physical object as much as we're seeing the light and that's what we're perceiving and our brains are putting it together as to what we're actually looking at so paul uses the principle that light reveals physical objects to us in truth we are seeing and interpreting the light which represents the object instead of the object itself now i think then that the 1984 NIV, I had to dig on this, but the 1984 NIV does a better job of translating this verse. It says, now I wouldn't say that very often, and don't, don't take me in, yeah, never mind. I know some people are against the NIV. But I, at times it's, it's a good translation. It's a good translation overall. But it says, For it is light, for it is light that makes everything visible. This translation, I believe, does a great job of capturing Paul's thought. If we truly want to see a, an item, an object, we bring it into the light. And my kids will love this example or this analogy. When your kid gets a splinter in their foot, you don't say, let's go into a dark room to get it out. I can see it now. Your son or daughter comes to you with this foot, with, comes out with his foot half chopped off, and you say, son, Look on the bright side. We got out got that old mean old splinter out, right? No, you go into the light to better see it so that you can gently extract that splinter without hurting your child. And that's Paul's point here. If we truly want to see something and understand it, we shed the light of God's Word on it. So we are to shed light on evil acts. In other words, when we see evil in the world, we must show it to be evil and warned the brethren about it. A week or so ago, I saw a post about Enneagram, which has been popular among some Christians. I appreciated the post because the person who posted took the time to explain why it is so dangerous. 
They also posted an article giving solid reasons why we need to avoid these things as Christians. I think this is a great example of seeing something that is evil and has potential for evil in the church and shedding light on it, giving truth, showing, showing that it is wrong. Now let me warn you that we need to be careful how we handle these things. Look, at, look back at verse 12. That's why we jumped ahead to 13, but look back at verse 12. He says, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. He's speaking of things done secretly by the sons of disobedience. This fits the concept of darkness, does it not? They do these things in the cover of darkness. The idea is to, that they hide or conceal what's being done. A graphic example from the Bible of this idea of secrecy is found in Deuteronomy 28:57, where it says that a woman will consume the afterbirth and her offspring secretly due to the stress of war. In Psalm 139.15, God makes us in the secret place of the womb. In Isaiah 29.15, God gives woe to those whose deeds are done in secret. Same, same use of the word. So Paul says these things done in secret are shameful even to, to speak about. So the question becomes, as Christians then, as the church, how are we to expose these things if we can't talk about them? Well, I think, our, I think we need to take our direction from the Word of God. The Word of God sheds light on evil, but it does so in a way that doesn't glorify it in any way. I think, I think if we follow the Word and its example, we can't go wrong in exposing evil. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a great example of this principle. In 5, 1, 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Now, that is succinctly and clearly stated. Yet he does not dwell on the nature of the sin. He just calls it out. Obviously, it's against the Word of God. So he calls it out and says, this is what's going on. He states it clearly, and then he moves on to the required response in 5.2. He in no way glorifies the evil deed. The question is, do we simply expose the evil and leave it there? <coughs> Our hope is that the brethren would heed the warnings and stay away from the evil. That is, that is wrong. That is evil. That is sin. Tell your brother or sister in Christ, and they stay away from it. But we, we know, you and I both know, that doesn't work that way. People don't stay away from these things. It's not always going to happen. So therefore, secondly... If we see our brother participating in evil, we must go to him. We must go to him. Now, I would argue that Matthew 18 helps us understand that process. I said we were going to look at this Matthew 18 in depth. Back in Matthew 18, 15, it says, If your brother sins, and go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. We saw that earlier. So if your brother or sister is involved in something that is evil, then we are to go to them and expose the evil for what it is. Again, the idea of exposure. We do this in private. It's an act of love and grace. We're trying to love, or we're trying to win our brother. And if they listen, we've won them. But if you expose the sin to him and he doesn't listen to you, what are you to do? Well, that, that brings us to the third action we are to take. We are to carry out church discipline. 
The next two verses of Matthew 18 are instructive. In Matthew 18, 16, he says, but, it, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you go to, the two or th- go to two or three faithful witnesses and tell them what you see. Now, this isn't a gossip fest. I mean, we're talking about sinful actions. We're talking about clear sin. Presumably, they will study the situation, clear sin, as in a man having his father's wife. (coughs) Presumably, they will study the situation, the people that you go to. They will assess it according to the Word of God, so that every fact may be confirmed. This is not to be a personal vendetta or a personal preference. This is a sin issue. And if they agree that there's, a, uh, there's sin here, then the group should go and reprove the brother. If he listens, then you have won your brother. If not, then the church proceeds to further action. So thirdly, we enter the realm of discipline, disciplining that sin out of the church because that evil cannot remain in the church. Now again, what we're talking about here is verse 11, where Paul says we are to expose this evil. So we're talking about the stages of the process of exposing this evil. We hope that it never gets to this point, but there, have to be, there has to be consequences if the sin continues. Just like a child, if the child continues in, in, a, in a sinful pattern, and sinful behavior as parents, we're not loving if we don't point those things out. We're not loving if we don't ultimately discipline if that's what needs to happen. And that's what we're doing here in verse 17. It's not popular. People don't want to do it. We want to, we want to do the old, you know, see no evil, hear no evil. We want to just live and let live, but that's not... You can't do that in the church. You can't do that in your family. It doesn't work. It will tear your, or destroy the church. So, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That's Matthew 18, 17. In other words, if he persists in his sin, then we are to excommunicate the sinning one. And we do so for the purity of the body, and we do so for the, the, for the good of the person who is in sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, 2, Paul exhorts the church about the man who was is, who is with his father's wife. He says this, you have become arrogant. He's talking about the church. And you have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. It's been identified. It's clear. And he's, he's been warned. And they choose not to do anything. Paul here is not circumcised short-circuiting Matthew 18, what he's saying is is that Matthew 18 needs to be carried out with haste. Again, again, we do this so that the evil does not spread throughout the body. As a doctor, if if, if the patient has cancer, what do you do with those cancerous cells? You go and you you do your best, even up to surgery. You do your best to get those cancerous cells out so that it doesn't do what? Infect the other healthy parts of the body. And it's the same thing with evil. 
We don't want the evil to spread throughout the body and affect the whole body. So we're to expose the evil and we are to faithfully deal with it lest it affect the entire body. And we go to the extent of disassociating with any so-called brother who will not turn away from the evil. Now, I don't say these things lightly. If you're like me, this can seem like an overwhelming and incredibly messy task. And it is. And it is. And sometimes, sometimes the cure can almost destroy the patient. But how will we ever, then how will we ever succeed at keeping evil from the church? Well, that's our third response to the presence of evil in the church. We are to entrust Jesus with it. Look at your text in 514. It says, for, it is, for this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, as you might imagine, this verse is not without some difficulty. The formula for the formula that starts it for this reason it says normally introduces a quote from Scripture. But in this case, Paul doesn't quote Scripture verbatim. Most commentators believe that this is an early hymn, possibly an Easter hymn. Uh, this makes sense because there's some parallelism in it that is comparable to Hebrew pearl poetry. But this hymn does seem to quote and paraphrase a couple of Old Testament Scriptures. Now, we do the same thing, do we not? Uh, we, with our hymns of worship, we set the words, the author will set the words of Scripture to music. But the author many times will take some liberties to make uh, the song sound good to the ear. Hopefully they do a, a good job of capturing the meaning. But sometimes we see you know, something, we go, well, I don't quite understand that. Why did he say it that way? So learning, But learning good songs, which teach us theological truths, is an incredibly crucial ministry in the church. And sometimes we, we mash together different truths and songs, right? But we're using Scripture to do so. Well, in this case, there are two verses which seem to be in focus. The first is Isaiah 26, 19, which states, You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. Now, we can certainly see some parallels from this verse back to Ephesians 5. But I believe the second verse has a stronger connection. And that's Isaiah 60, verse 1, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, here's what I think is going on. It's very interesting that this hymn in Ephesians 5 clearly shows that the glory of Yahweh will shine upon them, but the, it's the Ephesians 5, it's, that is, I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting mixed up here, that Isaiah says that the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In, in Ephesians 5, Paul clearly shows that this glory of Yahweh is none other than Messiah Jesus. So Jesus is the Messiah for whom and in whom Isaiah and every God-fearing Jew had hoped for. Now, <clears throat> I believe that the context of Isaiah 60 shows that this is the verse that Paul actually has in mind when he's quoting this hymn. Just listen to the, to, to the rest of the verses, verses 2 and 3, and you'll hear some key words which will connect us back to Ephesians. And In Isaiah 62, 60 verse 2, it says, For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples, but the, glory, or, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light 
and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, did you hear some key words there that make a connection back to Ephesians 5? The key words are light, darkness, and brightness. These, these verses specifically speak of the restoration of Zion in a yet future day. When Christ will reign on the throne of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem that is, the throne of David in Jerusalem, so the hymn then speaks or sings the praises of the Messiah in whom is our only hope. As such, as such, it is a capsule summary, if you will, of the gospel. The words awake sleeper describe the sinner who is asleep in the darkness of sin and unaware of his, of his condition, of his lost condition and his tragic destiny. Arise from the dead is the, the call to repentance, an appeal to turn away from, the death, from death to life in Christ. Christ will shine upon you. It describes the good news that the Father has provided the solution, the good news that Christ saves the sinner by His grace through His Son. But this is only true if they come to Him. And that's the truth. That's the truth that we must remember. But there's another truth here that we many times forget. Church, you don't stop needing the gospel as soon as you're saved. You don't stop needing the gospel as soon as you're saved. It doesn't work that way. We always need to consider what Christ has accomplished in dying for us. When we're tempted by evil, and that's the context of this in Ephesians 5, we need the gospel to remind us of who we are in Christ. In extreme cases, believers can sleepwalk in their spiritual lives. As such, they can fall into evil situations i used to sleepwalk when i was a kid i remember one time i missed dinner and i went to bed hungry and i woke up in the middle of the night standing in front of the stove with my fingers stirring the grease in, in the pot that was on the stove my mother you know i sleptwalk a lot i don't know why i don't do it anymore thankfully but my mother was terrified that i would go outside in my sleep i mean that was her that was her fear well beloved <clears throat> It is terrifying when Christians sleepwalk into sinful paths. The hope is that the light of the gospel will awaken them from their slumber. But there can be no assurance of salvation in these situations. Again, again, 2 Corinthians 5 is instructive. Paul says that the one there says of the one who has his father's wife, he says this in verse 5. So the 2 Corinthians 5 5, speaking of the one who has his father's wife, he says this I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Notice his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The hope in delivering them over. The hope is, is that they would one day come to repentance and return to Christ, that the world would be so hard on them, that Satan would be so hard on them, if they're truly in Christ, that they will come back, and they'll truly be saved. The hope is that they would wake from their slumber, and that Christ would shine upon them. Well, this morning we've looked at the three responses to evil in our midst. First, beloved, we're not to participate. We're not to engage with it. 
But we are to, secondly, expose it. Thirdly, we are to entrust Christ with it. Church, what is your response to the evil you see in your own flesh? Do you kill it or do you nurture it? In the words of John Owen, he asked, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it be killing you. End quote. Church, letting sin reign in your life is dangerous business. Dangerous business. Letting sin reign in the church, letting sin evil reign in the church is dangerous business. We need to be about killing it or it will kill us. And oh, unbeliever, I know you're sitting here. I know you're hearing me. I call you to consider these things as well. Have you considered Christ Jesus? He bids you to come to Him where you will find rest. He will shine the light of His countenance upon you and will give you rest for your weary souls. Don't go another day. Don't go another hour. Don't go another minute. Don't go another second without considering your eternal soul. O sinner, come to the cross. You will find forgiveness there. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. May we as a church, Grace Bible Church, always take sin seriously. May we have great thoughts of, of God because we, have, uh, because we think about and uh, go away from uh, our sinful tendencies. Father, may we love one another, not forgetting... Paul's command to walk in love. And Lord, may we not twist that and think that it's unloving to point out sinful issues. But in doing so with grace. We thank you this morning again for your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen.